How are we feeling? I'm going to move all this stuff out of the way. I hope you know this drives me crazy week to week. <laughs> um, anyways, let's see. Uh, so my name is David, and I'm the InterVarsity's campus staff intern here at William & Mary. Um, that means that I'm here for a little bit. This is my first year on staff, and I'm learning what does staff look like? What is, what is this job and what I'm doing here? Uh, and I will be continuing this series called Back to Jesus. Uh, tonight we will be talking about discipleship, but before we get into that, I want to address one thing I've seen in Christians all my life. We use really weird words, sometimes called Christianese. My fiance Kai told me a couple weeks ago about a conversation she had with one of her And then my leader said, and her coworker stopped her. She was like, you're a leader? <laughs> what is going on? Oh my gosh, I what are you was struck for a bit because calling someone a leader is normal for Christians, but it is not normal for anyone else. Uh, this is just one example of Christianese. Another example is the word catalyze. Literally, only chemists and college ministers use this <laughs> Or the phrase, doing life together. What does that mean? Like, are you getting married? Are you all roommates? Like, it's all very confusing. pretty weird. And my all-time favorite Christianese word, fellowship. Like, nobody's like, last night was so great. I just had these guys over read fellowships so hard. And it's just all really weird. Um, and there's one really weird Christianese word, and that is discipleship. Like, what is this word? Like, it's really strange, and it's a really strange thing to throw around to anyone who's unfamiliar with it. What do you mean you're discipling somebody? What does it mean to be discipled? Are, are people just going to follow you around if you have disciples? What qualifies somebody for being discipled, and who should be doing this discipleship? So tonight, let's clear up what discipleship is and why it's important. To see what discipleship is and why it's important, we should look uh, to Scripture to see what it says. Luckily, we have a very convenient window into how Jesus demonstrates discipleship in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus' three years of ministry on earth were primarily centered on 12 people, his disciples. Jesus' disciple, discipleship is laid out uh, throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew. And there are so many facets to his discipleship. It's almost like a well-cut diamond with many faces. Uh, there's Jesus' dedication, his teaching, his fellowship. But the question that remains is, what is the main face of this diamond of discipleship? What is the overarching theme and purpose of Jesus' ministry on earth? What emerges when we zoom out and look at the bigger story of Jesus' discipleship to the twelve? We believe there's an answer to this, and it's kind of surprising. We believe that discipleship, at its absolute core, is a plan. Discipleship is Jesus' plan to fulfill his mission to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus was not creating an insular group of pupils, but instead he was laying the foundation for the salvation of the world. Robert Coleman, in his book, Master Plan of Evangelism, has a really great way of putting it. He says Jesus individually could not possibly give the multitudes the personal care they needed. His only hope was to get leaders inspired by his life 
who would do it for him. Hence, he concentrated on those who were to be the beginning of this leadership. Though he did what he could to help the multitudes, he had to devote himself primarily to a few men rather than the masses, so that the masses at last could be saved. This was the genius of his strategy. Jesus intentionally focused on a few disciples to be the doorway to the kingdom of God to this world. To see this core meaning of discipleship, we will be looking at three passages in Matthew that show us the bigger story. The first passage is at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. It is where Jesus calls his people to become his disciples. The second is about the transfiguration of Jesus, and how he focused heavily on a few. And finally, we will be looking at a passage called the Great Commission. At the end of Jesus' ministry, right before he ascended back into heaven, Jesus commissions his disciples to go out and make disciples as well. That they are actually going to be the ones who fulfill Jesus' mission to usher in the kingdom of God. To get started, we're actually going to take a peek at the end and then work our way back through. We'll see how Jesus revealed his grand design for discipleship and then see what led up to it. So let's take a look at the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And by the way, this picture right here is the actual mountain where he gave this like, commission from. Um, I found it, so I thought it was pretty cool. Um, so this is what it says. Uh, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you see what this says? Jesus' last words to his disciples is to go and make disciples. Jesus spent three years teaching, healing, rebuking, and, and all that culminated in his death and resurrection. All the while, Jesus had his few disciples following him and probably wondering, what's the plan? After three years, Jesus' disciples were waiting to find out when Jesus would save the world. They were waiting to see how Jesus plans to fulfill his mission. And Jesus turns to them and says, you're the plan. Jesus' disciples have been the plan all along. Out of this passage, we can create a working definition for discipleship that helps guide our conversation tonight. Here it is. Uh, discipleship is the plan for the fulfillment of Jesus' mission to usher in the kingdom of God to the world. Let me say that again. Discipleship is the plan for the fulfillment of Jesus' mission to usher in the kingdom of God to the world. What does this mean? This means that Jesus has a mission to usher in the kingdom of God to the world. Jesus came here to reconcile everyone and everything back to himself. We believe that Jesus was there at the creation of the world. He created all nature, the stars, the oceans, the mountains, every fish in the sea, every living and non-living thing was created by God. God also created us, who, contrary to everything else in nature, can be in relationship with this God who created everything. Our pro 
primary purpose is to be in relationship with this God who created everything. In the freedom and the authority of this creator. That is a perfect world. But it is not the world we live in. All of creation follows in harmony with God's will until we get to humanity. We have the audacity to hear God's will and say no. We say that we want to be a God of our own life, and this severs the relationship between the Creator and His special creation. Humanity is left in a state of infinite longing for a relationship with God, but we cannot find it. We put things in place of God that leave us empty. This improper replacement is the doorway to evil. This self-righteousness, pride, and selfishness can only end in violence, discord, and pain. Humanity is in a broken, broken place. But Jesus comes to change that. Jesus is God coming into our broken humanity and giving us a way to finally be in right relationship. This relationship with Jesus leads us away from self-righteousness and into his love. Jesus came to establish a heavenly kingdom whose citizens carry out the work of redeeming the world. Jesus calls us into relationship with him, and that changes us. We are invited to look into our creator and savior's heart and let it change us. Henry Nouwen says this about knowing Jesus' heart. He said, the knowledge of Jesus' heart is the knowledge of the heart. And when we live in the world with that knowledge, we cannot do other than bring healing, reconciliation, new life, and hope wherever we go. Gaining access to the knowledge of Jesus' heart is a prerequisite for ushering in the kingdom of God. Jesus is establishing a new kingdom that operates on love and justice that is contrary to the current governments of his time and ours. A kingdom where God is at the center and we are not. This kingdom is a new place filled with newly created beings. New people who have been saved from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. People who are no longer slaves to the patterns of violence and oppression, but are free to live a new life that does not conform <laughs> to these patterns. These people are the followers of Jesus, more commonly known as Discipleship is the plan for Jesus to be in a relationship with everyone, thus saving humanity from its dilemma. Now we know what Jesus' mission is and his plans for discipleship are. Let's go to scripture and see how Jesus carried this out. There are three elements of discipleship that tell the bigger, the bigger story. Selection, focus, and commission. As we dig into scripture, I will also be sharing about my experience with discipleship at TCC with my staff, Katie. I hope this will not only give you a window into the biblical basis for discipleship, but also how it can look like in your life. So let's get started. Uh, let's look at selection. So Jesus set out to find people to fulfill his mission to usher in the kingdom of God. Now, let's think of who would be the ideal disciple of Jesus. Be the best of the best if he wants to be successful. So, what are some characteristics of this ideal disciple? So, like, uh, yeah, do we have any suggestions? Like, throw an answer out. So, like, we have this like ideal disciple to usher in the kingdom of God. 
What do you think it should be like? Humble. Humble. Okay, that's a good one. People like them. People like them. They need to speak like the original Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin. Like they need to be able to translate the Bible and like speak really pretentiously about them. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the perfect disciple. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, next slide. Let's see. Yeah, so our ideal disciple is somebody uh, who is educated, has a deep knowledge of, knowledge of scripture, is religious, maybe like a natural-born leader, really well-liked, well-connected. Um, yeah, so somebody who is in the temple every day and is even on like the temple's leadership. Um, yeah, so this ideal disciple is exactly who we think Jesus should select. Now, let's look at somebody who Jesus actually calls to follow him. <laughs> Peter is such an unlikely person for Jesus to choose. Peter had a family trade, fishing, to continue. Peter had a life before Jesus showed up. Also, Peter was not educated in scripture, and he was about 22, which is the oldest of all the disciples. But Jesus called him. Eleven out of the twelve disciples were actually very similar to Peter. The same eleven disciples that were on the mountain with Jesus. Um, but this begs the question, what about the twelfth disciple? The twelfth disciple was actually a man named Judas. Judas was well-educated, responsible, wealthy, and the most ideal person for, for Jesus to disciple. Judas uh, was with Jesus... Uh, for was with Jesus in his ministry for three years and eventually turned on Jesus and uh, turned him over to be killed for money. Uh, the ideal disciple turned it out, out to not be ideal at all. And the unlikely disciples became the ones to carry out Jesus' mission. There are a couple things to be learned from this. First, it shows that if you're discipling somebody and it doesn't work out, that just happens sometimes. If Jesus, God incarnate, disciples someone for three years and it didn't work out, then you can take the burden off of their success or failure. If you are faithful, you are doing everything you need to do. Also, if you think you're not ideal for discipleship, you're wrong and that's good news. Mm. If you're waiting to be an ideal disciple, that day will never come and you'll be stuck waiting. Jesus does not look for qualities that can be easily replaced. But what he is looking for is something else. Jesus is looking for obedience. If you're anything like me, you probably cringe at the word obedience. When I hear obedience, I think of when I was a kid, and my older siblings would just get a power trip off of bossing me around. I have three older siblings, and growing up, sometimes they, for some reason, uh, decided to assume the parental role and told me what to do. I don't know what it is, but that taps into some sort of deep frustration <laughs> because they're not my parents and they're my siblings. Uh, any other younger siblings in the house? Yes, you, do you know what I feel? Yes, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would just feel them imposing what they wanted to do onto me. Uh, we laughed about it today, but when I was a kid, this was so frustrating. The problem is, I also bring this when I think of my obedience to Jesus. Is Jesus just trying to impose what he wants on me and forces me to do it? What if I want to do something different? Is Jesus just going to force me to do what he wants? 
Obedience has been something I've struggled with understanding for a long time. Uh, I've heard one of my former pastors break down in a way that helped me to see obedience for what it truly is. He said that we usually view obedience as this wrestling match between us and Jesus. Jesus wants us to do something hard, but we don't want to do it, so Jesus pins us down until we do so. When I heard this, it really struck me because that's exactly how I view my own obedience to Jesus. Not a loving relationship, but this wrestling match. Later, he went on to say that at its core, obedience to Jesus is not losing a fight with him, but following him because we believe his ways are better. True obedience is not forced, but freely choosing something better that is not our own. A wrestling match is not needed because there's nothing to wrestle about. Peter has this obedience by following Jesus when he calls. He had a trade, and he left it all behind once, at once to follow Jesus. He didn't even say goodbye, but he trusted that Jesus would have something better. In Matthew 4, we see the radical obedience of Peter when Jesus calls him. Uh, it says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, so this is the Peter that we're talking about, uh, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, um, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. At once. It says, at once, they followed Jesus into where is Jesus calling you into obedience with him? Another way to ask is how tightly are you holding on to your life? What would it take for you to abandon your dreams if Jesus called you elsewhere? Do you actually give Jesus the power to change you? Or does he have to fit inside of your plans? At what point would you say no to Jesus? I know that if I'm honest, these questions are hard for me to answer. Let me tell you more about what this has looked like. Uh, I felt completely fine with my life when my staff at TCC, Katie, first invited me into discipleship three years ago. I was in school and I felt as if I had it all put together with Jesus. Sure, I didn't have everything figured out in my life, but I was not open to anything changing in me. I was on the worship team of my church and I felt like I didn't need college ministry. I was fine with my life. I didn't think Jesus had much to offer. I was ready to coast for a couple of years at TCC, and I was not into the idea of making friends there. Luckily, Katie gave me a vision for something more. Katie invited me to become a small group leader at TCC. So instead of just coasting and not making friends, I was invited to minister to the students I initially wanted to avoid. Katie helped me to see that Jesus had a better plan for my time at TCC, and she walked with me as I stepped into this better plan. I began to see TCC not just as a place for me to go to class and go home, but a place that Jesus loved. It was almost like I was given new eyes to see my campus and the people there. I felt like I could see more and more of what Jesus was doing at TCC. To continue my walk into obedience, Katie began to focus in on our discipleship. We went from meeting twice a month to once a week. This leads us to the next element of discipleship, which is focus. To understand this next part, let's look back to Jesus. 
Jesus spent almost all this time with his disciples. He selected them, and to those who said yes, Jesus invested heavily. While on earth, Jesus primarily ministered to 12 people, and better yet, really to three. God in the flesh, on a rescue mission to save the world, has three years to do it, and he leads a small group. <laughs> Jesus shows us that the work of discipleship is hard work. If Jesus takes three years and 90% of his time to lead his disciples into spiritual maturity, how can we expect the same results overnight? Jesus, in his limited human body, can only properly minister to a few people. Jesus demonstrates his focus in Matthew 17, a passage about the transfiguration where Jesus shows his full glory to the inner three disciples. It says, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now a little further down in the passage in verse 9. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This passage has a lot of layers and significant events, but I want to zero in on this one part. Jesus is being really exclusive. The transfiguration happens, uh, yeah, while the religious leaders of the day are looking for a sign to prove that Jesus is God. Jesus does not give the religious leaders the proof that he is God, but instead brings along three of his disciples to see his deity. These inner three disciples have been the first three people to witness Jesus in his full glory, and they were told not to speak a word about it. The weirdest part is that the other nine disciples never complain about this exclusivity. This is especially weird because they complain about almost everything. <laughs> I think what is going on here is that Jesus is practicing proper exclusivity. This is exclusivity that is not self-centered, but other-centered. Exclusivity motivated by love and not selfishness. Proper exclusivity needs a motive that is not self-centered, but other-centered. Jesus is practicing proper exclusivity with his disciples, especially the inner three, because his goal was the world. He knew he had to focus on his disciples to carry out his mission. If Jesus focused on the masses, Christianity would die out in a few hundred years. The same masses that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, shouting Hosanna, also shouted crucify him just a week later. Jesus loved the whole world, but he chose to exercise proper exclusivity to reach it. And I know some of you might have felt when we do discipleship, that there's like this exclusivity. You might feel this tension of like, I felt excluded in this way. But if, if the way we do discipleship leaves people feeling excluded, then we need to check our motivations. Are we discipling our favorite people for ourselves, or are we for the sake of the entire campus? Mm -hmm. Also, if we're feeling excluded because, uh, also if you're feeling excluded because you're not in a discipleship relationship, I would encourage you to look at your expectations for discipleship. Are you looking for discipleship for community? And uh, if you're desiring discipleship, do you know what you're signing up for? Discipleship is for you to grow in your obedience to Jesus. Good discipleship changes you in radical ways.
Good discipleship should change your life, and if you're holding your plans tightly, discipleship will be challenging. We are created for community, but discipleship is not meant for you to get deeper and deeper into this community, but deeper and deeper into your relationship with Jesus. Now, if our community is practicing selfless exclusivity, our community needs to change, not our discipleship. Now, proper exclusivity can be a really beautiful thing, and can show love in a real and genuine way. One beautiful picture of proper exclusivity is found in marriage. A loving marriage has an intimacy that only the two people in it really know. A married couple are in a properly exclusive relationship that is best when it is not self-focused, but others-focused. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I just got engaged to my fiance, Kai, this past weekend. There's something so amazing about how I asked Kai specifically to specifically marry me. There is power in the fact that my proposal to Kai was not an open invitation. <laughs> Imagine if I said, Kai, or anyone else who happens to be around, will you marry me? That would be crazy, right? Like, we would be off the rails. And this is such a beautiful picture of this proper exclusivity. Um, yeah, and Jesus does this, but he does a different kind of proper exclusivity. Jesus has specific hopes and dreams that are specific to you. Jesus has specific hopes and dreams that are for your small group. Jesus has specific hopes and dreams for this chapter. Jesus has specific hopes and dreams for your classmates. And Jesus has specific hopes and dreams for the school. Jesus wants to focus in and lead us into greater and greater obedience to him. In the same way, Jesus is properly exclusive to his disciples. Jesus could only invest into 12 people while he was on earth. He had specific hopes and dreams for his disciples to live out his mission. So yes, Jesus was being exclusive, but properly exclusive. In the same way, Katie focused on me and our discipleship relationship. My time with discipleship with Katie felt like a sacred place. She intentionally focused on my walk with Jesus the whole time we met. If someone called her during her discipleship meeting, she would respond when we were done. If someone just walked up and started a conversation with us, she would let them know gently that we were having a one-on-one -on -one conversation. During discipleship, Katie gave me her full attention, and she was genuinely concerned with what was going on in my life. For the two and a half years discipled by Katie, she intentionally focused on my growing obedience to Jesus. Katie encouraged me to press deeper and deeper with Jesus. I was beginning to see that my relationship with Jesus actually had to affect everything in my life. I can no longer hide in my own self-righteousness as I ignore my need for Jesus. There was a greater plan for me at TCC, and I was not just to be a leader in the Ivy. That was not just being a leader in the Ivy community. Jesus was no longer someone I just talked about in a small group, but was reaching every corner of my life. In my classes and in every subject, I would be reminded of Jesus. I found him in my biology class, I found him in my history class, in philosophy, in my chem labs, in English and even in math. 
even more, I found Jesus in my family relationships. I found Jesus' presence in my romantic relationships, in my friendships. I found Jesus as I waited tables and worked with people that are the outcasts of our society. Jesus seemed to be with me wherever I went, and he was working. I had nowhere to hide. Jesus gave me something greater at TCC than I could ever imagine. I wish the story ended there, but it doesn't. Near the end of my time as a small group leader at TCC, my life was getting pretty hard. I had lost my car in a hurricane and didn't have the money to get a new one. I tried to be in a relationship with somebody and it didn't plan out the way the it didn't pan out the way I wanted it to. I didn't have a stable source of income. Uh, my classes started getting really hard, and I saw after Jesus less and took more of my life into my hands. I wanted to fix my problems, or at least be numb to them. One way I try to deal with uh, with my life being hard is drinking alcohol. My first couple semesters of college were really hard, and instead of getting away from, instead of deepening my relationship with Jesus, I would have fun by just drinking excessively underage and getting away from everything for a night or two. I was replacing Jesus with a fun distraction. Side note, uh, I don't want you to walk away uh, trying to build a rule book for drinking alcohol. Uh, I will gladly talk to you about that if you're interested. Um, but, uh, yeah, the thing is, this is where I replace Jesus and alcohol. Like, I, I wanted to find a fix to my problems, and I chose alcohol instead of Jesus. So, at some point, I actually stopped drinking underage altogether at my time at TCC, because I felt convicted. It felt wrong to simultaneously step into this greater plan that Jesus had for me and replace him at the same time. I had to choose one or the other, and I chose Jesus, at least until I didn't. A group of some university students and I just turned 21, we all wanted to go out together. This would be a new experience for us, and it seemed like fun. I was an underage born, and we had designated drivers. Um, yeah, the problem is that, honestly, I had different intentions that night. I wanted to escape from my life. I wanted to get drunk and forget for a few hours that I didn't have a car that I wanted, I didn't have the grace that I wanted, I didn't have the money that I wanted, and I didn't have the relationship that I wanted. So I did just that. I went out and I got drunk, just as the old David would have done. I didn't care that Jesus had a better plan. I didn't want to press into my relationship with him. I just wanted something else for that night. The next day I woke up and tried to act like nothing had happened. And that almost worked, at least for about a week. I found out that much of my university community knew what had happened. One person told another, then another, then another. You see how this would happen. People that were in my small group knew. People that looked to me for spiritual guidance knew. And this is the most painful, Katie knew. I decided for a night that Jesus didn't have greater things for me. And that put into question all what Jesus showed me in Jesus. I remember going to a large group and for the first time not trusting my university community. I didn't feel at home. I remember laying in my bed that night and just weeping. I felt homesick. I felt as if I was slipping into my old self, back to the first semester, semesters of college, when I would replace Jesus so easily. I didn't know what to do. 
I felt lost, and not only that, I felt like I couldn't go back to the way things were. How do I just jump back into leading my, into leading my small group when I had just replaced Jesus? How do I look for Jesus if I'm willing to drop the relationship when it gets hard? How do I go back to Katie and tell her that the months of work don't really feel real anymore? I was at a loss. I had discipleship with Katie the next day, and I was regretting it. I had to come to terms with what I had done and face it. Katie walked me through what led to this regression to my old self. After processing the week I had with Katie, she told me to spend some time with Jesus and work it out with him. So I did. I found a park nearby where I could be alone. I remember walking and praying out loud to Jesus. I was saying things like, Jesus, give me some clarity, or show me what you want to do. And eventually, I was frustrated and just cried out, Jesus, if you don't show up, I don't know what I'm going to do. In this place of desperation, I pressed him. I wanted to answer and see if he would even take me back. Along the path, I saw a log, and I knelt down as a door altar. I recited the sinner's prayer to Jesus and said that I was sorry for replacing him. Then I got up, and I felt his presence again. Immediately, began to weep. Jesus found me in my brokenness. I let him down, but he was faithful to me. Not only that, but Jesus spoke to me and invited me into his work, his mission. I remember looking at the trees and seeing this overwhelming abundance of life. And I felt Jesus say, look all around you. This is how I work, and I am inviting you into it. Jesus found me and commissioned me for his mission. Jesus himself invited me into an overwhelming abundance of life. This is how Jesus discipled me. And how Katie joined in Jesus' plan to make a disciple out of me. Now it's my turn to do likewise. The good news of the kingdom of God will not easily be taken from me. I was, in fact, the new David. The months of discipleship were not in Jesus loves me and has hopes and dreams specifically for me. This, friends, is the plan. This leads us to our third point, and that Jesus commissions his disciples to go into lifeline. This is what Katie was doing. Katie was working to make a disciple of Jesus out of me through discipleship. Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples. This means the slow, hard, and messy work of discipleship. Let's look at that passage again. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of this age. Jesus wants us to focus in and make disciples of Jesus. We are to go to the whole world and lead people into greater obedience to Jesus. We are called to show the world that Jesus offers something greater. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, but David, this math doesn't work out. We cannot simply continue to focus on a few and reach large numbers of people. It doesn't work like that. 
Well, let's put that to the test. Let's consider two separate ministries. One ministry has a new follower of Jesus every day. That is 365 salvations in a year. That's crazy. That would be a success story by all of our standards. Yeah, just getting people into this program and they say yes, they make a one-time transaction to follow Jesus. Let's call this ministry, Ministry 365. And another ministry that takes a year and disciples two new followers of Jesus. And then they go out and make two more disciples. Like, imagine this first year, right, between these two ministries. One ministry, Ministry 365, is like, wow, we had 365 people come to faith. And the Ministry 2 is like, we had two people come to faith. Like, it just doesn't seem comparable. But I actually made a graph and <laughs> see this play out over a number of years. So even though Ministry 2 takes a long time, so this, the x-axis is <laughs> the years, and then, I know where I'm at. <laughs> the y-axis is the number of people. So for a number of years, ministry two seems like a bad idea. It seems like a failure. Like, what are you doing? For nine years, you have like almost no following, right? You have done almost nothing. This is ineffectual. But then you see there's more to it. The consistent work of discipleship is far more rewarding in the long run. I believe this chart should deeply shape our view of ministry. Discipleship is the genius of Jesus and a plan we probably won't, wouldn't have picked ourselves. Still, the most unbelievable part of Jesus' plan of discipleship is that he uses us. Again, Jesus turned his disciple, turned to his disciples after three years and said, You are the plan. We are to make disciples as we are disciples of Jesus. Our work as disciple makers is to come alongside others and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus. Finally, Jesus reassures us that he will be with us always. Meaning, his disciples will have more of them. His actual presence is with them through the Holy Spirit. Again, in the book, Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman writes about this very real presence of Jesus. He says the impartation of the Holy Spirit was no theory, no creed, no makeshift arrangement that Jesus was talking about. It was a promise of a real compensation for the loss which the disciples were to sustain. Another comforter was just like Jesus, just like Jesus was to fill them with the very presence of the Master. Indeed, the privileges that the disciples were to have in this deeper relationship with the Spirit were greater than they had known as Jesus walked with them along the roads of Galilee. Do you see what this says? Jesus is calling people into discipleship, focusing on them and commissioning them out to his mission, all through the Holy Spirit. Scripture is clear. We have more access to Jesus than the 12 disciples did. We have the chance to be closer to Jesus than when, Pete, when Jesus said to Peter, follow me. We have the chance to be closer to Jesus now 
than the inner three did when Jesus transfigured in all his glory. We now can be closer to Jesus than we ever thought thought possible. This ought to change everything. If you're a Christian, you're an extension of one of the twelve. You are in an actual relationship with the same Jesus we see in the Bible. Jesus said it would be better when he left now. And he said it would be better when he left because now we have unbridled access to him at any point and at any time. If we lived in the reality that Jesus of Nazareth is really here, still, what would change? Imagine what our community would look like if we treated Jesus as if he was in this very room. Sometimes I think of what it would be like to meet Jesus when I get to heaven. I'm sure some of you have thought this as well. And I think the big surprise that meeting Jesus will be very familiar. That he's been there all along. This, friends, is the final promise of the Great Commission. Jesus is drawing his people to him. The question is, will you join him in his mission? So the nice thing is we have this lovely exec team, and they have made it so easy for you to get involved in discipleship. So this isn't just some hypothetical thing you can think of later on in the future. You can be in a discipleship relationship this upcoming week. So here's some practical steps you guys can take. You can look for discipleship relationships. Like, just be aware of what's going on. Exec has a sign-up form for you to fill out. Um, they're collecting a bunch of people um, to see, yeah, to a bunch of people that uh, want to be in discipleship relationships. Uh, so we have a pool of people for that. And also, um, yeah, when you do have discipleship, have a plan. Like, make good use of this time. Um, yeah, like, I, I love when people come together for community you guys deepen together. That's great, but it's not discipleship. Discipleship is this place, um, yeah, where you guys are there to intentionally grow. And, like, take a, take some time, put some effort into, like, making this a good space. And also, when you do discipleship, define what the relationship is. Limit the relational ambiguity of, like, I don't know what we're doing, I don't know what this is. Sometimes it's Unhelpful, and it's good just to know what's actually going on. If you're looking for genuine community, actually having no ambiguity is a good way to do that. It's not genuine to do discipleship with somebody and they don't even know what's going on. It's a very genuine thing to say, this is what we're doing. Will you join me? And take action. Don't waste. Don't be stuck in this place of waiting, hoping that discipleship will just come along. There's, there's lots of things waiting for you. And also the nice thing is that Exec also made this nice discipleship take, uh, like tips and tricks card um, that you can find somewhere around here <laughs> on your way out. And even on top of that, there is an email being sent out to all of you on tips and things to do uh, in discipleship. So this is a very real and practical thing to be entering into. 
Sam. Quick note, the email came from Drew Darby. That's InterVarsity's old president. It didn't get switched on MailChimp for some reason, but that's who you should look through the, to the email from. Drew Darby in spirit. So discipleship is a thing you can do. And I believe you guys can do it. We can be a community that is really, really good at discipleship. We can enter into the mission that Jesus has for us. 